Hebrews 11.38 Men of whom the world was not worthy, roaming over the desolate places and the mountains and living in caves and caverns and holes of the earth. Acts of ministry and service within the body are often motivated by I need to find my place or a guilt response to a need publicised from the front for a position which is vacant or a need to find our identity in what we do. All of our service and ministry has a mixture of motives, complex feelings and sometimes it is guilt induced. Strongholds of self mixed with a desire to serve God which sometimes becomes so marginalised it can no longer be seen. But the Father graciously receives us right where we are and willingly risks his own reputation to allow us the practice we need at his expense. He knows we have to start somewhere. He never condemns us. Ultimately, people described as having a big heart may in fact be self-serving because it's humanism in Christian garb. It makes them feel good to help other people. And the ouch factor here, beloved ones, is high. Maybe um, a little illustration would help at this point. Contrast this scenario. It's your last fiver. You're in a meeting and the Holy Spirit whispers, put it in the collection. Or he asks you to give it to someone you know is not responsible with money. Is there going to be a battle? You bet your sweet life there is. It'll be, oh no, I need petrol on the way home. That can't be God. Or she'll only waste it. She can't handle money. It'll be like throwing money down the drain. It's my last five pounds. Surely God would not ask that. I rebuke you, devil. <laughs> any of those and more. If you would give without pain or argument, you're growing up in God. You're doing the good works he's ordained for you to walk in. Not a lot of the good feel-good factor in this one. And then there are other life issues. Backbiting, jealousy, gossip, Again, the Corinthian church, 2 Corinthians 12:20, Amplified. For I am fearful that somehow or other I may come and find you, not as I desire to find you, and that you may find me, not as you want to find me, that perhaps there may be factions, quarrelling, jealousy, temper, wrath, intrigues, rivalry, divided loyalties, selfishness, whispering, gossip, arrogance, self-assertion and disorder among you. Whispering and gossip to name but two. Big problems in the body of Christ. Beloved, if people would only realise that as they speak about others, God hears. Paul doesn't want to have to bring correction to these believers. He wants to come with gentleness and love. But if they refuse to grow up, he will have to bring his authority to bear. 2 Corinthians 13:10. So I write these things while I'm absent from you, that when I come to you, I may not have to deal sharply in my use of the authority which the Lord has given me to be employed, however, for building you up 
and not for tearing you down. His desire is that they may grow increasingly in wisdom, knowledge and understanding of the love of God and grow up into all things in Christ. There is no value in ignorance. God wants you to know, he wants you to understand and he wants you to grow. He has dealt with our past on the cross so he is not going to talk to you from there. He has put you in Christ so he can see you in a particular way. That is why he put you there. He calls you up to where he is. Jesus stands in the gap between what you are now and what you are going to be, your credibility gap. He always speaks to our potential and what he sees. And if you're still being offended, just die. It's time to stop that. To die to the self-indulgence of feeling wounded, hurt and reactive. Grow up. Revelation without application will achieve nothing. Perspiration is in the middle. He works it in, you work it out. This is the journey from notes in a notebook to experiencing the truth for you. You can't live on someone else's revelation. You can't live on someone else's message or anointing. You may have pages full of notes and listen to message after message, but you have to establish your own truth. The notes tell you it's true, but it's only when you live it out it becomes truth that sets you free. The word becomes flesh upon you. Knowledge without experience is just knowledge. A man with an experience is beyond reason. You know because you have experienced something. The most irresponsible thing a teacher can do is to give fresh revelation to people who haven't yet processed the revelation you have. Paul knew this. So he comes to the Corinthian believers and brings correction by his letters. It would be like giving a four-year-old a loaded revolver he will shoot at everyone in sight because he doesn't know what he's doing. Information does not become revelation until you have processed the word that you already have. If you look carefully at these teachings you will see that I repeat myself continually. So question, what do you want people to write on your tombstone? Gone to fill another notebook? Think about it. What legacy do you want to leave behind you? Fullness, abundance, is always about God enlarging you, your capacity. He told me recently over something I was struggling with, I was so relieved to hear what the problem was. Your heart, beloved, is three sizes too small. The joy in my heart when I realised and when he spoke to me about the fact that my heart was too small to hold what he wanted to put in it was indescribable. Now I know what's going on. Now I know how to cooperate. The Christian walk is progressive. We're not meant to be standing still, no matter what age we are. 
but walking into our destiny, our inheritance and our purpose on this life, in this life and on this earth, to be like Christ. It is so important we remain pliable, flexible, moldable and teachable and correctable in this process. The enemy will always attack that negative part of you that God wants to deal with next. That's his purpose. God uses the accuser as a sheepdog to point to something he wants to change in your life. So if right now God is pointing something out, don't be distressed about it. Do yourself a favour and cooperate with him in the process of change. I want to talk a bit now about uh, giving and taking offence, which is another thing which is absolutely huge in the body of Christ. But uh, one different way of looking at it is, did you know that you will probably not finish your Christian walk without being offended at God himself? Think of the fiver and the plate. Matthew 11, verse 6 in the Amplified. And blessed, happy, fortunate, and to be envied is he who takes no offence at me and finds no cause for stumbling in or through me and is not hindered from seeing the truth. When Jesus said this, he was in a room full of religious people and he was speaking to the disciples who were following John. John, you will remember, had had his own ideas about what Jesus would or wouldn't do. And when Jesus appeared on the scene with an agenda and did things that didn't fit what John had decided Jesus was going to be doing, he came very close to being offended. And we see this in Matthew 11, 2-6 in the Amplified. Now when John in prison heard about the activities of Christ, he sent a message by his disciples and asked him, Are you the one who was to come or should we keep on expecting a different one? And Jesus replied to them, Go and report to John what you see and hear. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed by healing, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have the good news, the gospel, preached to them. And blessed happy, fortunate and to be envied is he who takes no offence at me and finds no cause for stumbling in or through me and is not hindered from seeing the truth. Jesus recognised what, what John was saying. John was saying, hey Jesus, get with the programme. You are supposed to be the coming king. You are supposed to be releasing us from the tyranny of Herod. And he addresses in a most direct way an understanding of what it means to be offended and our responsibility not to allow that offence to occur. Go tell John. They expected a king and he came as a suffering servant and they were offended at him. And we see the potential for offence again in Luke 9 51 to 55 now when the time was almost come for Jesus to be received up to heaven, this is the Amplified again, 
he steadfastly and determinedly set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent his messengers before him, and they reached and entered a Samaritan village to make things ready for him. But the people would not welcome or receive or accept him, because his face was set as if he was going to Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John observed this, they said, Lord, do you wish us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, even as Elijah did? 2 Kings 1, 9-16 But he turned and rebuked and severely censured them. He said, You do not know of what sort of spirit you are. The disciples here are offended. The people are not welcoming Jesus as they think they should, and they've taken offence on his behalf. As a result, they want to call fire and judgment down on the people whom Jesus came to save. The disciples were probably nursing past offences. These were Samaritans, they were in unforgiveness, and this was the last straw. Let's have some judgment here, Jesus. We'll call down fire, never mind all this love stuff. In turn, Jesus appears almost to be offended at them, and he responds, You do not know what spirit you are. Paid on. Lads, spotty adolescents, boys, grow up. However, Jesus didn't embrace the offence. He recognised that it existed and immediately dealt with it, so that none of them carried it any further. He rebuked them and censured them as part of their growth process. How many of us can embrace the rebuke or censure of God without being offended, I wonder? God uses misunderstandings between us as individuals as an instrument to teach us something. In these circumstances we can either choose to be offended or release the offender. There are many, many opportunities to be offended in the body of Christ. If we consider the various combinations of both giving and receiving offence, the possibilities become limitless and occasions for taking offence continual. We must therefore learn to have the proper response if we are to live above offence. Consider this. God intends us to have our minds renewed while we are here on this planet. And possible offence towards him lies in our answers to the following questions. How could this process of God possibly offend me? Put the fiver in the plate. What aspects of my life does he intend to make new and how much disorder, how much turbulence am I willing to endure in the process of that renewal? He offends our minds to get to our heart. And he requires us to surrender all past, present and recurring offences let them go. Love keeps no record of wrong. A recurring offence is when you say, you always do, you always say that. It is something specific and recurring. 
Are you willing to surrender past, present and recurring offences and to be free from taking offence? The Kingdom is about complete transformation of our total personality. Can you envisage the possibility of the Lord doing something in that process that you would not understand or which would attract your disapproval? Put that fiver in the plate. Offence enters through your mind and attitudes. There's a gateway here. How much offence have you allowed through your gate? If Jesus said offences will come, how are you preparing your mind and emotions and will to respond to those offences? Luke 17.1 in the Amplified, it's 1 to 5 actually. And Jesus said to his disciples, Temptations, snares and traps set to entice to sin are sure to come. But woe to him, by or through they come. It would be more profitable for him if a millstone were hung round his neck and he were hurled into the sea than that he should cause to sin or be a snare to one of these little ones, lowly in rank or influence. Pay attention and always be on your guard, looking out for one another. If your brother sins, misses the mark, solemnly tell him so and reprove him. And if he repents, feel sorry for having sinned, forgive him. And even if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times and says, I repent, I'm sorry, you must forgive him. Give up resentment and consider the offence as recalled and annulled. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith, that trust and confidence that springs from our belief in God. Paraphrased, the disciples are saying, Ah, help, you're hitting us right where we live. Lord, increase our faith. Would you identify with this downward spiral? As the result of taking offence, we experience a measurable increase in agitation, irritation, moodiness, touchiness and becoming increasingly impossible to please. We are then inclined towards collecting more offences. We wait for or anticipate the next broken promise, lie or disappointment which proves and reinforces the offence. We develop a negative perception of life so we question and re-examine people's opinions and statements even those which are simple and well-meaning. All this turns us in on ourselves. We begin to experience a downward cycle of cynicism and self-defeat that is based on the strange paradox of paranoia that says just because you are paranoid does not mean they are not after you. We begin to inhabit the world of suspicion. For those of you who followed this teaching you will by now understand that this is the Eros serpent eating his own tail. He is consumed with himself. Taken to the ultimate, once the offence from whatever source has been deeply and completely received, and this is very serious, 
the only thing that could possibly relieve our discomfort is to re is to remove the perceived source of the offence from the face of the earth. Cain and Abel. Taking it then to the inevitable conclusion, when we are offended because we didn't get what we wanted, when we wanted it or whatever, abuse, violence and eventually thoughts of murder will follow because we want the offender removed. So the disciples cry out, Lord, do you wish us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? A short step from offence to murder. If you leave a negative like a fence unattended, opposition will attach itself to it and your life will become wretched as something dies inside you. And believe me, everyone around you will detect the smell. It's death. You're going rotten from the inside out. Maybe you're prone to take offence easily, to feel rejected and cast aside. Maybe your offence doesn't lead to actual murder, but do you murder with your thoughts, your words? Your mind is a cesspit of activity about the perceived hurt, stirred and spiced by the enemy, until you won't go near the offender. The daily news gives us reports of religious, political and economic upheaval of personal abuse, violence and murders that are motivated by deep offence. The end result of receiving offence functions on the sowing and reaping principle that overtakes our intentions and desire. We have the freedom to choose not to be offended. We do not have the freedom to choose the consequences if we do not take and make that choice. Offence is probably the most identifiable source of depression leading to suicide, violence, abuse and divorce. For one who is deeply offended, reconciliation is out of the question. The offender must be removed from the face of the earth. This is what happened to Jesus. He so offended the religious people of his day, they killed him. Examine the Gospels afresh and you'll see offence after offence after offence. The disciples were offended by Jesus speaking to the woman at the well. The giving and taking of offence is serious. It will hinder or prevent us from following Jesus into our destiny and purpose because we do not have his mind, his mercy, his intention, his heart, his love. When Jesus said to the disciples, you can't follow me now, he was saying, if you follow me, there lies the possibility of being offended, and you are not ready. To bring it right down to the now, what if Jesus wants to send us to our in-laws or siblings who we haven't spoken to for years because of offence? What if he asks you to extend his love to that neighbour who offended you five years ago by something he did? 
that friend you haven't spoken to for years. All the rewards and benefits of the kingdom are just beyond our being released from our long-held offences by the application of the cross. So when God points out something he wants you to deal with, he's not accusing you, but planning to help you triumph in that area in order that you may inherit a blessing. Your part is to tell him how you feel, ask him to help you, and bless that part of your life which isn't working. Your part's not try to, to struggle with this yourself, but to cooperate with the indwelling Holy Spirit as he works the transformation of your inner man. When God begins to deal with these things, and he will, it's not to make you feel bad, guilty or got at, so that you'll run and hide. When the Lord puts a finger on a part of your life that isn't working, he's actually pointing out to you the sight of your next miracle. So, what current area are you struggling with now? And are you trying to deal with it on your own? Who's a silly billy then? Time to plead guilty and ask for help. God has provided a way for us to be sanctified and made into the image of Jesus through the indwelling Holy Spirit who's our comforter, friend and personal trainer. Take advantage of the free offer of pardon and forgiveness and walk free from your silly self. We are defined spiritually by the choices that we make. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Romans 8, 11. Being led by the Spirit means that we feel as He feels, we speak as He speaks, we see others through the lens of Jesus, not the lens of our fallen understanding. We're becoming the huios of God, fully mature sons who only speak the words the Father speaks and do the things the Father does. The thought here is that unless you're being led by the Spirit of the Father, you're actually, to a greater or lesser extent, doing your own thing. You're not doing what God says. Romans 8.11 is describing someone who is God-conscious 24-7. When Father says to do something, it's yes, sir, and it's done immediately. We're only following the Master. Jesus said in John 5, verse 30 in the Amplified Bible, I am able to do nothing from myself, independently of my own accord, but only as I am taught by God and as I get his orders. Even as I hear, I judge. I decide as I am bidden to decide. As the voice comes to me, so I give a decision. And my judgment is right, just, righteous, because I do not seek or consult my own will. I have no desire to do what is pleasing to myself, my own name, my own purpose, but only the will and pleasure of the Father who sent me. It's a wonderful prayer that. You could personalise that for yourself. We touched last month on being father pleasers. Here Jesus is stating that he only wants to please his Father, to do the will and the pleasure of his Father. That's why he came. 
We're all in process, beloved, and the process is S-L-O-W. God takes time tenderizing your heart. He has you in this pressure cooker, and the tougher you are, the longer it'll take. The more grace you need, the more grace grows you'll require around your life to conform you to the image of Christ. And he brings us the easiest way we'll come. You determine the pace of your own development by your willingness to move your feet and embrace change. We are predestined to be conformed to his image. We will reign, you will get there, but you cannot get there now. You can reign and rule in this life. You can taste the powers of the age to come. You can get there now. You grow up quickly by identifying what's wrong and putting away the baby things, agreeing with the Holy Spirit that this is baby behaviour or unrighteous behaviour and you put it off. This is where the perspiration comes in. You don't suck your thumb at 22. You put off guile, hypocrisy, carnality and replace it with the righteousness of God. 1 Peter 2, 1 and 2 in the Amplified. So be done with every trace of wickedness, depravity, malignity, and all deceit and insincerity, pretense and hypocrisy, grudges, envy, jealousy, and slander and evil speaking of every kind. Like newborn babies, you should crave, thirst for, earnestly desire the pure, unadulterated spiritual milk that by it you may be nurtured and grow into completed salvation. The word is what you grow on. It's a mirror for you to look in and see where you need to make mid-course corrections. Never go into the Bible to criticise it. Let it be a mirror for you so that it can tell you where you need to change. 2 Peter 3.18 in the Amplified But grow in grace, undeserved favour, spiritual strength and recognition and knowledge and understanding of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ the Messiah. To him be glory, honour, majesty and splendour both now and to the day of eternity. Amen, so be it. Grow and continue growing. We all have the ability to upset each other, but we all have the opportunity too to grow up in grace. The fruit of the Spirit is the character of Jesus. The more you open your heart to the Holy Spirit, the more you will become like Jesus. Determine that you will be flexible, pliable, teachable, moldable, correctable. Make a choice. The flesh doesn't want to be changed. It will scheme to be able to remain untouched. It will whine. It will throw a pity party and seek sympathy. Don't listen to it. The inner man of the spirit doesn't whine when the flesh is put under pressure. He is energised, happy, diligent and ruthless towards the enemy. The inner man of the spirit loves the nature of God and is excited and blessed at every opportunity to be like him.
I want to talk about honour and pose the question, a culture of honour? God honours us because he is honourable. There is a culture of dishonour out there in the world and it's our job to bring back a culture of honour and respect towards others. Not to join them in catalalia, which is the Greek for backbiting and evil speaking, literally speaking down. It's spelt K-A-T-A-L-A-L-I-A. To talk down. A definition of honour is to show respect, admiration or tribute. The culture in which we currently live is a culture of dishonour. When I was a child we were taught to rise from our seats when the teacher entered the room and at home to rise when an older person entered the room and to give up our place on the train or bus to an adult. There was a culture of honour. Where did it come from? Leviticus 19.32 You shall rise up before the grey-headed and honour the aged and you shall revere your God I am the Lord. A hundred years ago this was a godly country but as many of you may know you can lose in one generation the legacy of the past and somewhere along the line in this country we've lost this culture of honour. We have a culture of I was here first regardless of age or importance. I have been physically pushed and trodden on by a man who wanted the place I was occupying and that in a church setting. Within the Church of Christ honour is lacking. Beloved it ought not to be so. We are citizens of another kingdom. A kingdom where God gives honour because he is honourable. If we therefore name ourselves as being of Christ we need to rethink how we see ourselves and those around them, us, and begin to honour them. We are not to push to be first. We are to stand back and allow others to go first. We are representatives of a royal family and as royalty we should conduct ourselves differently. 1 Samuel 10, 25 New American Standard then Samuel told the people the ordinances of the kingdom and wrote them in a book and placed it before the Lord and Samuel sent all the people away each one to his own house. There is a particular way that the children of a king should behave. God has set authority within the body of Christ. Honour is due to God, given by God and expected by God from the citizens of his realm. 1 Timothy 5.17 The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honour, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. 2 Timothy 2.20 Now in a large house there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and earthenware and some to honour and some to dishonour. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honour, sanctified, useful to the master, 
prepared for every good work. Ephesians 6.2 Honour your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise. The whole idea that some deserve more honour than others seems to some to be unfair. However, a kingdom mindset is completely different. It's difficult to read the Bible without being exposed to the culture of submission with levels of honour and authority clearly set out. We've heard quite a lot in this day of the younger generation being the ones upon whom the anointing is going to fall for the next revival. However, when God refers to a generation, he includes all, the youngest to the eldest. He doesn't single out the young or the old for a particular anointing or service. So something is wrong here. And some church groups have a culture of the young. God sees one generation, old to young. As the generation joins hands, each properly honouring the other, we will see Malachi 4, 5 and 6 come to pass. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. This passage makes it clear that as the generation joins hands, fathers or older ones with the younger, the curses over our land will be broken. God is raising up fathers and mothers in the faith right now. It's called an apostolic move. These people are not young. Life lived has a way of imparting wisdom which is required if we are to mature and pass on that maturity as a legacy to the next generation which will not be lost. And the young need to heed, understand and honour the wisdom of the old and the elder need to honour the younger by listening to them. God does not intend nor did he create us to have a generation gap. This is a myth created by the enemy to divide families and nations in order that he may rule. The Bible intentionally gives more honour and respect to the elderly, but our culture disempowers them. The wrong spirit is influencing us both inside and outside the church. When the kingdom is present inside us, honourable behaviour becomes natural to us. The kingdom is within us. We give honour to all men, not just because they deserve it, but because we are honourable citizens of the King. 1 Peter 2.17 Honour all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honour the King. Honour of others is not dependent upon how others treat us. We do not give like for like. We honour people because we are honourable. For a Christian, honour is a condition of the heart, not a product of our environment. Honouring someone does not mean that we agree with them. It means that we value them as people who have been created in the image and likeness of God, people who are valuable to him. In Christ, everyone has an equal vote but not an equal voice. 
God has ordained his structure of leadership. When honour returns, control must leave. Many of us have suffered at the hands of insecure, controlling leadership. Honour facilitates the flow of life in the kingdom. Honour is an issue of the heart. Honour is humility in action. Honour is a matter of the heart and it requires us to make an honest assessment of the value of others and a choice to focus on that above ourselves. Someone once described arrogance like this. Arrogance isn't thinking too much of yourself but thinking too little of others. Jesus told us that anyone who wanted to be in his kingdom must become a servant. Matthew 20:27. 20, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Leadership is servanthood. We are among you as one who serves. Luke 22:26. But it is not this way with you. But the one who is the greatest among you must become like the youngest and the leader like the servant. The Bible often describes people as the least or the greatest. There are people whom God has elevated above others and they have something we need. Just as Elisha recognised he needed Elijah's mantle, so we have much to receive from those who have gone before and beyond us. We show this by honouring them, not by making an idol of them or setting them on a pedestal. Then the life flows from the honour that is in our hearts towards them, even though we may not agree with them. God has set leaders in the body of Christ, which is built on levels of honour, and which allows life to flow to every member as each person gives and receives the honour that is properly due. When this is distorted, the body suffers. So let's talk a little bit about process, life in the spirit. Life in the spirit is not about avoiding tough situations. It's about making a profit from them. It isn't about putting on the boxing gloves and taking on the opposition. It's about drawing into the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ through the indwelling Holy Spirit and living there in the space that God has created for you next to him, living in my space. It's about developing 101 pounds pressure on the inside to 100 pounds pressure on the outside. That's all you need to tip the scales in your favour. Just one pound. In this process of enlargement and growth, God's grace towards us is both his protection and his patronage as we work through the issues of righteousness and Christ-likeness on this journey of discovery. Life in the Spirit is brilliant. And you measure yourself spiritually by how much opposition it takes to bring you down, not by how loudly you shout in a prayer meeting. 
You measure yourself by how much of the enemy's work in your life you actively resist. It's about being in alignment and to be in alignment we must understand and agree with God's intention for our lives. Prospering is about taking advantage of the goodness and grace of God regardless of circumstances. The best mindset to have is the one that originates in God's heart for you. And if you're getting rid of a mindset, be sure you replace it with a better one because the enemy loves a vacuum. Let this mind be in you. Philippians 2.5, New King James Version. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. You can only replace a mindset with a mindset. Your mind must no longer be a playground for the enemy. It needs to be a place of worship. It needs to be a place of power. We need to start walking in line with our own human footprint in order that we achieve the things that God wants us to achieve. That we no longer waste our time on things that have no eternal value. Beloved, don't let life pass you by. Find out what the will of God for you is and begin to draw that to yourself. You get intentional by realizing you only have one life to live. You don't know how long that will last. So you determine to squeeze every ounce of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him out of every moment he gives you. Don't let life pass you by. You only have to have had one brush with death to know how precious life is and every moment is to be lived full to the, for the glory of God. It has a way of focusing you like nothing else can. Life in the spirit is always about displacement, it's about having another thought, it's called repentance, changing your mind, exploring another realm, it's brilliant every day, something new to discover about this great God of ours. He is altogether lovely, he is good and he is endless and he is immutable, he never changes. And light, it's about the amount of light you have. You cannot live in someone else's measure of light. If you have a pinprick of light, you'll be able to do things that many of us can't. But that light is meant to increase day by day, week by week. You're not meant to be static in your Christianity. God holds us accountable and responsible to live in the light we have, not in the light we do not have. So this puddle of light should be increasing all the time. What I could think last week, I can't think this week because I stand in more light. Ignorance is not a virtue and mediocrity is not part of our inheritance. Whatever we do, we do it as unto the Lord. There's no difference between secular employment and our Christian walk. It's a myth. You're a Christian in or outside the church building because Christ is in you. Mother Teresa had a personal, life-transforming revelation of Jesus' cry from the cross, cross, I thirst. As a result, she spent her life caring for the poorest of the poor, quenching the very thirst of Jesus himself. 
This was the motivation behind all she did. It moved her each day to labour. She did what she did as unto the Lord. Colossians 3.17 Whatever you do, in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. We're not all called to be a Mother Teresa, but we are all called to do whatever we do in the name of the Lord and as unto him. This will transform ordinary, mundane, everyday life into an adventure in Christ, doing everything as unto him. Attitudes, motives, doing what we do well to the best of our ability. We walk by the design, purpose and absolute intentionality of God. We are here to demonstrate the glory of God upon the earth. We are not normal people. We are a race apart with a different father. We share his glory and distribute it wherever we go and whatever we do. This does not mean that we take ourselves into a monastery or all become nuns of some sort of elite group. It means that we go out there into the world and change the atmosphere by our very presence because we are glory carriers, we are life changers. We're the bride of Christ, we're his body. The head has risen and he's left his body on earth to complete the job. It's our inheritance and our right to carry the glory. Mediocrity and glory cannot cohabit. In Isaiah 42.8 where God said he wouldn't give his glory to another, he was not speaking about us as being the another. He was speaking about the enemy. Graven images, that's the one he will not share his glory with. Some of us agreed to a divine acceleration recently and it's a principle with a divine acceleration that you must act within the time span of the opportunity. When the opportunity of a lifetime comes you must make sure that you act within the lifetime of that opportunity. So we need a spirit of wisdom and revelation. A spirit of wisdom is a capacity to know how God thinks how he perceives something and what he wants to do and how he wants to do it. Wisdom to know those things and revelation shows you who you are and where you are and what Father is doing so you can cooperate in an accelerated way. Some of you are facing difficult choices right now. The Holy Spirit is highlighting areas in your lives where he's asking for change. This is a direct result of your declaring you wanted acceleration. God has taken you at your word. He started so he'll finish. You may not fully realise it, but you were given the opportunity of a lifetime. There may not be another opportunity in God, the like of which he held out to us a few months ago. Such windows open for a season, they're not open forever, so you must make sure that you act within the lifetime of it particularly in these days because we're in a season where God is redeeming the time for us because the days are evil and it's so important that our response times are much much quicker. We can no longer afford to procrastinate or make excuses for ourselves. 
the days of awaiting on the Lord are over. Sometimes that was a euphemism for us waiting for him to change his mind about something that he was speaking to us about. Now be honest, we used to get away with these things, trying to outweigh the Lord and such, or we thought we did. What actually happened was that sometimes the Holy Spirit put pressure on us and we didn't do anything. And eventually he seems to go away and we breathed a sigh of relief because we thought we'd got away with something. You all know the term, delayed obedience is disobedience. Well, it is. And if you persist in disobedience, you're just silly because it will catch up with you. God doesn't change his mind. I, the Lord, change not. There's always inflation in the truth. And the next time God brings that particular issue around, it'll have compound interest on it. And it'll cost you a lot more to say yes, because you have that much more disobedience to work through and you've got some growing up to do. Let your yes be yes. If God's saying a great big yes to the speed of your movement, then it's permission for you to go as fast as you want to go. God is speeding things up and our responses must come much faster. We need to get to yes quicker. Ephesians 1, 15 to 18, for this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ which exists among you and your love for all the saints. I do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. That's actually to verse 17. We need this so much a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. The spirit of wisdom, as I've said, is to know how God thinks, what he wants to do, what he wants to say. The children of Israel knew his works. Moses knew his ways. It's a time of acceleration and in a time of acceleration everything all the normal rules don't apply because we're in a season of momentum and rapid movement and the normal response of I'll sit here and think about that just don't apply so we need to add to our knowledge of God wisdom and revelation because when he sends a quickening spirit all the rules change we're learning to walk in sync with God, in harmony and agreement with Him. We begin to anticipate what God's doing. And because we have a sense of what He's doing, when the Word of the Lord comes, it lights the blue touch paper and we're expectant of something going to happen and we move quickly into the next phase of our development. It's so important that you understand what he's doing in you and what he's doing through you and that you don't resist either of them. Confusing the two causes casualties. Prophetic people when they're in the baby stage frequently prophesy over others what God is doing in them to the confusion of the person being prophesied over. If this is you, check it out. Make sure God isn't speaking to you rather than someone else. It may well apply to others. But let it work in you first before you start prophesying it over someone else. 
got to let it work through you it's got to become your experience flesh upon you testing all things when you're prophetic has to become second nature to you father I think you're saying this am I to say it or pray it how do you want to say it what tone what emphasis what body language practice 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 process can be difficult big transitions are not easy with a poor attitude they are almost impossible so never allow yourself to take the pressure off the flesh his love gives us so much room to enjoy life as we grow and change. His mercy and grace are unbounded towards us. Grace is God's rubber room. We walk in, bounce off the walls and then walk out the other door. Grace is the power of the risen Christ within you to accomplish that which he purposes in and through you in partnership with him. An awareness of the grace of God is a necessity. God doesn't empower us. He doesn't want us strong. He wants us filled. We want to be strong so that we can do something. But he comes to fill us with himself so that all his virtues, the fruit of the spirit within, may be clearly seen through us. One life to be lived, his through us. 1 Corinthians 1.27 But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. God needs neither our strength nor our intellect. One with him is always a majority. He's present future with us all the time. He looks at what he sees, not what you see. Your insecurities and your inabilities. He'll never speak to your personality, only to your persona. If he sees you as an Esther, he won't speak to you as someone who's suffering from low self-esteem. We have a need to be renewed in the spirit of our mind in order that we can come into alignment with how he sees us, what he plans for our lives and move into that. This is that which was spoken of. There is a future and a hope for you in God. There is not a future and a hope outside of him. So let your yes be yes to him and your no be no to the world. Going back to where we started then, many Christians are held up in their walk of faith because they don't actually know the essentials of the Christian walk. It's essential that we know what we know, believe what we believe and live in the good of it that we know and are able to give a reason for the hope that lies within us, 1 Peter 3.15. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defence to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. For this reason it is important to get foundations right and I would always recommend anyone to go through the basic Bible studies recorded by Roger Price. He was a true teacher of the scriptures and you can access his Bible studies on www.ccftapes.co.uk If you can't afford to buy I believe they still operate a library system where you um, pay for one session, return it and they send the next. 
A word of warning though, these studies are described as basic. They're basic because you cannot build without them. They are not simple. So in this regard, basic means essential for growth. They are extremely detailed expositions of the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation and they will put the footings in on your understanding and then you can build. And I unreservedly recommend them. Once you've got these behind you, you can begin to build and the next person I recommend you listen to is Graham Cook who gives the practical side of the Christian walk. With the input of these two men you will have a firm foundation upon which you not only grow but become an instructor of others. So be blessed. And to finish now beloved, a prayer. You might feel that you want to pray this one. Father thank you for the blood of Jesus. I have been impacted today by the truth and reality of what you've said and particularly please fill in your own blanks here. I confess Father that I've missed the mark in these things and I ask your forgiveness. Thank you Lord that in Jesus I can receive not only forgiveness but cleansing. I now choose to lean my whole person into your Son, my Lord Jesus Christ. Take me into yourself, do in me what I cannot possibly do for myself. Cleanse me, renew me. I know that in this process there is life and freedom, not guilt or condemnation. Send me to those for whom you have died. I ask you to do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Guys, thanks for listening. In November we will look at the positive aspects, our instead ofs, when we look at the risen life. Um, and if you weren't at the meeting, I'll just run some questions by you for meditation for you to think about. Next month's is Outrageous Love. Uh, questions for meditation then. Number one. Do you struggle with accepting who you are in Christ? How easy do you find it to trust in all that the Father has provided for you in Jesus? Do you know and understand what he has provided for you? Number two, what are your major barriers to self-acceptance? Do your emotions run your life in terms of your spirituality? For example, if your emotions were running contrary to what you should believe, which would win? Number three, what is the effect of your non-acceptance of yourself on your relationships with other people? Do you need to earn their acceptance? Or do you find yourself judging others harshly because you judge yourself? And finally number four, 
Do you find yourself working to obtain God's to obtain God's approval or acceptance? What are the obstacles to your living in your much-loved child space? Thank you so much for listening. God bless you. Amen.